This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. My guest today is Steve Sirowitz. He's an entrepreneur and a philanthropist, and he's the executive producer of a new film about the Baha'i faith called The Gate, which was released this year, the 200th anniversary of the birth of the founder of the Baha'i faith, the Bob. And today we're going to be talking about that film, but also a little bit of background about what Baha'i believe and how their history over the last 200 years has grown to a global religious movement with 5 million adherents. And so, Steve Sirowitz, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you for having me. So there's a lot that I want to talk about, and I would love to, to just dive right in and ask a little bit about the Baha'i faith itself. And so I mentioned that it's been around for about 200 years, but tell us how it got started. So in 1844, there was a huge expectation among Muslims, Jews, and Christians that something was going to happen. The Jews were expecting the Messiah, the Christians were expecting the return of Christ, and the Muslims were expecting their promised one, which some Muslims call the Mahdi, other Muslims call the Twelfth Imam. It's actually the same thing. And that person, that messenger, the Mahdi or the Twelfth Imam, we, call him, we can call him Imam Mahdi, is kind of the midpoint, is supposed to herald the return of Christ. So interestingly enough, the Jews are waiting for the Messiah, which is, just means Christ, Christians waiting for the return of Christ, and Muslims also waiting for the return of Christ. Around the mid-1840s was a huge expectation among all three faiths that something was going to happen. The Jews didn't see the Messiah, as we know, but the Jews did get two other things they were expecting for. They had the Jewish Zohar. They were expecting a return to Israel and a technological revolution, and the world has seen both of those things. The return to Israel started in 1844 with the Ottoman Edict of Toleration, and the technological revolution the Jews were expecting, that has happened too. The pace of invention has gone up a hundredfold. But the Jews didn't see the Messiah, so we'll move on from the Jews. The Christians all over the world, in Germany, in France, in Holland, in Switzerland, in Sweden, in 700 ministers in England, 300 ministers in America, all of them were saying throughout the 1840s that Christ was going to imminently return. It's not like today where if you ask most Christians, they hem and haw and say, well, yeah, I may be Christ to return. I hadn't really thought about it today. They were thinking at that time that Christ was going to return imminently. So the biggest one in America, there was actually several people predicting this. Uh, Martin Luther predicted that Christ would return around 1840. John Wesley of the Methodist faith predicted 1836. But the biggest one in America, actually you can also go with Joseph Smith, he said throughout the 1830s and early 1840s before he was killed in 1844, he said that Christ was going to imminently return many times. But the biggest one was a man named William Miller. He starts off as a farmer. 1831, he has this crazy theory that Christ will return in 1844. He tells his family, he's, looked at, he's actually studied the Bible for two years, and he's, he's really studied bi- biblical prophecy, and he's sure that Christ will return in 1844. Tells his family, he's a shy farmer, makes a pact with God, says, God, I'm not going to talk about this publicly unless I'm asked. Less than an hour later, Miller is asked by his son-in-law to go speak at a small church, and he does. Thirteen years later, Miller has 100,000 followers. They're all thinking Christ is going to return his original date, March 21st, 1844, comes and goes. So they, 
find a new date, October 22nd, 1844. It's got his 100,000 followers. They're waiting for the world to end, and you'll never guess what happened. The world didn't end. The world didn't end, and it was the great disappointment. And this great disappointment goes out through all of Christianity. In Germany and France and Holland and Switzerland and those 700 ministers in England, they're all disappointed. They don't see the return of Christ, and we kind of forget about it. And it would be over, except there's one more group, the Muslims. Um, one other thing about the Christian Bible, Revelation 11 has something very interesting in it. It says that two witnesses will come and take over the holy city for 1,260 days. And I've talked to a lot of Christians about this, and some of them have some theories. Most people have heard of it. They kind of know about the two witnesses, but haven't really thought about what it means. Well, interestingly enough, the Baha'i writings talk about what it means. The two witnesses, well, first of all, the holy city, Jerusalem, the 1260 days, the way you do biblical prophecy, it's 1260 years. So what does that mean? Well, you have to figure out who the two witnesses are. And the Baha'i writings say the two witnesses are Muhammad and his chosen successor, Ali. And the 1260 years are the 1260 years of the Muslim dispensation, the Muslim age. And it just so happens that Muslim year of 1260 is 1844, the same year that Miller came up with, not even knowing about this part of the Bible. And so we come to the Muslims, and it's very interesting because the Muslims themselves come up with the same year. And they're not reading the Christian Bible, they're looking at their own book, they're looking at the Quran, and they're and Shia Muslims, basically all of Persia, now modern-day Iran, they know that the 12th Imam disappeared in 260, and they say he's been in hiding and he'll come out in 1260. Again, by the way, that number 1260 throughout the Christian Bible through Revelations is in there at least seven times. It's in there as 1260 days, 42 weeks, three and a half days, times, times, times and a half. So if I'm hearing you correctly, what you are saying is that 1844 is a significant year for all three of the Abrahamic faiths. I am. And all three have, by independent calculation, come up with this number through study of their sacred scriptures, and there was great expectation around this. But if I'm also hearing you correctly, each of these faiths believes that they were frustrated in their expectation. Except for the Muslims. Okay. So in Persia... And most of the Muslims were waiting for a thousand-year-old man to come out of hiding. And you'll never guess what didn't happen. A thousand-year-old man did not come out of hiding. And the reason why? Usually, thousand-year-old men stay dead. Yes. And that's exactly what happened. The 12th Imam never came out of hiding. Those same people who were predicting that, which is now, they were called mullahs then, they're called ayatollahs now, are now predicting an almost 1,200-year-old man will come out of hiding. And you're never going to guess what's going to not happen. <laughs> well, probably a 1,200-year-old man will not come out of hiding. That is true. Okay. But there was a group called the Sheikhis, and they were following Sheikh Ahmad, and he started this Sheikhi movement, and he was extremely spiritual, the most advanced Muslims of their day. And they believed that the 12th Imam would return on time in the year 1260, 1844, but would return as a young man, and that does happen, the Bab. And the Bob was born in 1819. Correct. He was born 200 years ago. And so he was a young man in 1844. He was barely in his mid-20s. He was 24 years old. May 23rd, 1844, he declares, the, actually, Mullah Hussein, who's a very prominent sheikh, he finds him, and he becomes the first believer, the first public believer. And the Bob, if I'm not mistaken traced his lineage not only back to Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, but also Abraham, the patriarch of all three of these Abrahamic faiths. Yes, and Baha'u'llah does as well. Okay. So interestingly enough, the Bab traces his way back through Hagar, the second wife of 
Abraham, Baha'u'llah traces his lineage to the first and third wife, to Sarah and Keturah. So actually, all three wives of Abraham are, are represented in the Baha'i faith, between the Bab and Baha'u'llah. And so the Bab is recognized by this sheikh, Sheikh Ahmad. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, by Mullah Hussein. By Mullah Hussein, who becomes yeah. the first adherent. And so what does Mullah Hussein recognize in the Bab? What does Mullah Hussein see? So Mullah Hussein has been given certain things to look for. A young man between 20 and 30 years old, uh, without physical deformities. But most importantly, he's supposed to have just an incredibly profound spiritual teaching. And the Bob does. The Bob, right in front of him, answers questions in a way that nobody could, unless it was really directly from God. He, he starts revealing the word of God, and Mullah Hussein is astounded and becomes the first follower. Unbidden, he gets 18 disciples. He doesn't go out and look for disciples. His disciples come and find him, including one female disciple. Tahre and Tahre is very interesting because she's the only disciple who never meets him. She was so spiritual that she recognized him from a dream. But there's some very interesting stories about how his disciples became disciples. By the way, the Bob declares May 23rd, 1844. We, we talked about a new age. The new age starts May 24th, 1844, from an, uh, from an invention point of view, with the telegraph. The very next day, Samuel Morse sends the first telegraph. What hath God wrought? And that's from, I think, Numbers 33 or Numbers 13 or something yes. like that. Yeah. yeah, it's talking about a messenger of God. So it's, it's, it's so interesting how all of this fits together. So the Bab, meanwhile, back in Persia, starts teaching this new faith. He goes to Mecca. He publicly declares in Mecca, he grabs the Kaaba, the holiest place in Islam, and he says, here I am. I'm, I'm the promised one. He comes back to Persia, and he's not quiet about it. The disciples go all over Persia. He starts getting thousands of followers. And the king, the Shah, starts getting a little worried, a little concerned, sends his number one religious scholar, Bahid, with a sword that he gives him to kill the Bab if the Bab isn't who he says he is. Bahid goes very loyally down there with the sword, but like publicly vows to kill him if he's not who he says he is. And Bahid is pretty sure he's not who he says he is. And he spends the first 45 minutes telling the Bab how great he is and expounding on his own knowledge. And then the Bab starts talking. And you can almost see, in fact, in our movie, you can really see the face of Vahid falling as he realizes how he's underestimated the Bob. But it's almost more than an underestimation. He realizes he's in the presence of God. They meet three times. The third time they meet, the Bob reveals the equivalent of one-third of the Quran in a single day. It took Muhammad 22 years. And so Vahid it has to be resuscitated by the Bob because he's so... You know, literally, he's watching God reveal his word right in front of him, hour after hour with perfection. Just the power and perfection of God's word being revealed is enough. I mean, Vahid is a, a famous scholar. He, he's not just anybody. He's not a nobody here. He knows what he's looking at. He realizes he's, he's, he's wise enough to see that this is the word of God. He reads it, and he says, if all the powers on earth were lead against me, I would not abandon my confidence in this cause. And he doesn't. He abandons the Shah, never goes back again. Five years later, he becomes a martyr in the cause of the Bab. 400 other religious scholars follow suit, 100,000 followers. So now the mullahs of Persia have to decide. Now, it's very interesting. The mullahs of Persia only have their power because they're borrowing it temporarily from the 12th Imam. And so when the 12th Imam comes, they have to give up all their power. So what do you think they do? Do you think they say, here's all our power, we're going to give it to you, and we're just going to walk away. Or do you think they put him in jail? 
I would imagine that they put him in jail. And let's dig into that in our next segment. But for, for right now, right before we go to break, so Islam is resistant to this new teaching. Is that fair to say? Well, it's interesting. The leaders, the ones who have something to lose are resistant, but the followers are, I mean, literally whole towns. He had over 100,000 followers. There were some towns where the whole town became Bobbies, followers of the Bob. So on one hand, the people, the religious leaders were resisting, but on the other hand, versus, let's say, even Jesus Christ is powerful. And, and, and by the way, in the Baha'i faith, Jesus Christ is incredibly revered. But in terms of his success in getting followers, there's been nothing like the Bob, not even Muhammad. Muhammad was much slower in getting followers, especially his first several years, I think he had one follower. The Bob, it's like lightning, like wildfire. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Steve Sarowitz. He's an entrepreneur and philanthropist, and he's the executive producer about a new film about the Baha'i faith called The Gate. We'll continue our conversation in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Steve Sarowitz. He is an entrepreneur and philanthropist, and he's the executive producer of a new film about the Baha'i faith called The Gate, which was released this year on the 200th anniversary of the birth of the founder of the Baha'i faith, the Bob. So we were talking in the first segment about the Bob coming up against the religious leaders from Islam of his time in the 1840s. And there was massive resistance on the part of the leadership, but that he was getting very, very strong support from the lay people in the communities. But you mentioned the leadership did not proclaim his wisdom. Instead, they put him in jail. Yes, they put him in jail. And the jailer is a very strict jailer, and he's actually a provincial governor as well. And he's sent there by the prime minister. Essentially, the religious leaders and the prime minister and the shah shared power. And they were all scared of the Bob. They were scared of losing their power. So the prime minister is the prime mover in this, and he gets in, and I believe the jailer was a relative of the prime minister. And so for a little over a week, the Bob is in essentially solitary confinement. But then there's a really interesting incident where the jailer goes out very early one morning, sees the Bob fervently praying, and He's, a little, he's very upset, so he goes back inside the jail. It's a small jail. I think he goes through the only door, and he goes inside, and there's the Bob inside his cell, and he doesn't know what's going on. The Bob motions him to come see him, and the Bob says, what you've just seen is reality. God has sent this as a mercy upon your soul. And so the jailer, who was very hostile to the Bob, changes his tune completely, opens up the whole jail. Every morning the Bob is giving an open lecture to the entire province because he's also the provincial governor. And so it's quite amazing, the turnaround. And so this is hugely upsetting to the prime minister, and, and he quickly gets him transferred to another jail. Same thing happens. That jailer becomes a believer. So they're, they're almost out of options. 
So they put the Bob on trial, and they ask him who he is. And the Bob says very famously, I am, I am, I am the promised one you've been expecting for a thousand years. Very similar to Christ when he was put on trial. The I am, the Moses refers to the I am, Christ in his trial, I am that I am. This I am is a repeating thing throughout religion. And I can talk about that a little bit later, but I guess one thing I should say is that we, and that we as Baha'is believe that there's a single God and that God has sent all the messengers. And so we have, as I mentioned before, tremendous reverence for Jesus Christ and Moses and Abraham and messengers that would be familiar to Christians. We also revere Muhammad, we revere Buddha, we revere Krishna. We believe that all of the messengers of God taught universal love. And so with us, I would say that we would have as much love for Jesus as a Christian would, but we also love the other messengers. And we believe that there's really only one God. And, and so we, we expect to see these similar patterns among the messengers. So if I'm hearing you correctly, the Baha'i faith weaves together both the Eastern traditions, you mentioned Krishna and Buddha, mm-hmm. but also the Western traditions. Mm-hmm. And Islam sort of lives between those two traditions, both East and West. And so in this stitching together, what I'm hearing you saying is even though Krishna would represent what Christians would call a, a polytheistic approach, multi-gods, and maybe Buddha, by some estimations, would be no god, you still see those as being representations of a deeper monotheism. Have I heard that correctly? A one-God proclamation, or a one-revelation proclamation? Think of it this way. The Bible, John 17, 3, says there's one true God. Also, Jesus repeats the seminal Jewish prayer, the Shema, and when asked the most important commandment, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the words of Jesus Christ. And, of course, the words of Moses, because he's repeating them. So, Throughout the Bible, it says there's one true God. The Quran says there's no good God but Allah. So all of the great scriptures are saying this. But interestingly enough, you mentioned Buddha. Buddha says this, which is very interesting. And, and although some Buddhists believe that there's no God, some Buddhists believe there is a God. And it was very good that you kind of hedged a little bit on that, that maybe Buddhists might believe in God and might not. But what Buddha said, which is much more important than what Buddhists think, Buddha said there's an unformed and uncreated and unborn. And without this unformed, uncreated, unborn being, that we, the created, the formed, could not exist. That's a a very strong reference to a single, all-powerful, omniscient, omnipotent God. So Buddha believed in God, clearly. From a Baha'i perspective, reality is one. And so there's not a reality for the Buddhists and a reality for the Jews and a reality for and a separate reality for the Christians. It's one reality. So if there's one God, as the Bible says, well, we believe that. And we know the Muslims believe there's one God, and we know the Jews believe there's one God, but actually Buddha said there was one God. And interestingly enough, when you mentioned the Hindus, Hindus, I also teach the faith quite a bit to Hindus, and most Hindus also believe very strongly in one God. And as you delve into the Hindu writings, it becomes much more clear that Brahma, or Brahman, is the creator God. And so there actually is a concept of a God. It's a little more hidden. Another way to look at that when we talk about polytheism versus theism is polytheism is the roots of theism. It's the kindergarten, you might say, of school. We, we think of all of religion as a continuous school for humanity, and we think of humanity as one. And so what's changing is not God, it's us. And so thousands of years ago, all of our ancestors, whether we're Christian today or Jewish today or Muslim or Baha'i, all of our ancestors were polytheists. And back in the time of Krishna, He's coming and giving this message to polytheists. 
but I've talked to people who know a lot more about Hinduism than me, and they've said it's, it's actually monotheistic all the way back to its roots. So when we're thinking about the Bob in the 1840s, the context in which he is saying these words, I'm the one that you've been waiting for, is a Muslim context. And I guess for a while, what is the Babi faith at that particular time could be considered kind of a reform movement within Islam. But there's a point where it becomes a distinct break with Islam and becomes its own faith tradition. Talk us through that. Well, you're asking the right question at the right time. So as I mentioned, he had a female disciple. Her name was Tahereh. And actually, Baha'u'llah, who ends up being the successor prophet, organizes this conference at Badasht and in, in Persia. And so the Bab is in jail, so he's not at the conference. But, he's, but at Badasht, the leaders who are disciples of the Bab get together. Correct. And Tahereh pulls off her veil in public, which you have to imagine, 1848 Persia, where you couldn't even look at the shadow of a woman. Here is this actually beautiful woman, Tahare, pulls off her veil and she announces that this is a new faith and a new age for the entire world. She doesn't say for the people of Badash. This is not a Muslim movement. She says this is a movement for the entire world and that, she's an, that the Bab actually had inaugurated a new age. And one of the lessons, she says that the laws of Muhammad are done and the laws of the Bab are now in place. And one of the laws she's advocating is absolute equality for women. Days later, in Seneca Falls, New York, just days after Tahereh does this, comes the first Women's Rights Convention. Interesting. And so as this is happening, so Tahereh is taking the teachings of the Bab and is putting them into basically a social policy, a new way of thinking about the interaction of males and females. What is the reaction of the clerics that are gathered? Do they say hallelujah or do they freak out? Well, these were all followers of the Bob, and some of them probably said hallelujah. Some of them, the man, one of the men standing right next to her actually slashed his own throat with his fingernails and left the scene. Some of them left the faith immediately. I want to compare this to Christianity because I really, you know, the audience is mainly Christian. You have to understand when Jesus was teaching, Christianity was not recognized as a new religion until decades later. So Christianity as we know it today um, for many decades, for like, I think, 30 to 50 years, I think it was at least 30 years, Christianity was not considered a new religion. It was considered a branch of Judaism. So this is actually, although it seems like a long time, four years after the Bob declares before there's this break, it was actually very quick that there was this break. And it was, it, it's very hard because you have to understand they'd followed this religion for over 1,200 years. Islam was now over 1,200 years old. And so it was a big it was a big thing. Actually, you're, you're talking since, yeah, it's, it, Muhammad comes in 622, or that's when he starts his religion. So you're talking over 1,200 years later. And so they'd become very used to this religion. So it was a, quite a shock to the system that this was a new faith. They were expecting it. And you have to understand, these were the most advanced Muslims probably in the world at that time. And yet it was still a shock to some of them. The good news is that a lot of them, most of them, stood their ground. They followed it along. They realized this is a new faith, and they bravely stood their ground, very bravely, as we're going to go to the next part of the story. Well, and, and I'm going to say that there was now armed resistance <clears throat> against this. So not only jailing of the Bob, but there became battles. Yes. And the battles were highly pitched. And uh, if the listeners want to get a dramatization of these battles, you, the film that you helped to produce, The Gate, sort of shows them in vivid detail. But so as these new followers of this new faith go to battle, one often thinks of devout religion as being peaceful, but they took up arms. 
Well, they took up arms defensively. And so the Bob discouraged war and the name of faith. Uh, he very much discouraged that. Um, however, they had no choice. They literally had to defend themselves. For example, with Mullah Hussein, they were attacked. They were given safe passage, and, and they had, there was a surprise attack against them. They would have been wiped out, but they actually, which is interesting, these religious scholars who in no way could they have actually defended themselves were actually able to defend themselves and survive. And not only were they able to survive, they ended up in a place called Fort Tabarsi, and they were able to hold off the, the Persian army for months, and eventually the Persian army never defeated them, which is really interesting. You know, these are, imagine taking a bunch of religious scholars today against the U.S. Army. This is what it would be like. And these religious scholars with, you know, poorly armed, very much vastly outnumbered. Mullah Hussein was really interesting. Mullah Hussein was known as a frail man. He was named, sick, frail and sickly. He was not known as a powerful man. And there's a story about him, it's actually in the movie, taking a sword and going through a person and a tree with one blow. Mullah Hussein was so feared that the army ran from him. And this was a, this not, he wasn't known as a large man. I'm, I'm actually quite tall myself, six foot six. So it's interesting, you know, Mullah Hussein was the opposite. Um, I'm fairly athletic. Mullah Hussein was not. So it would be interesting, you know, if I were to do something like that, it might make sense. But Mullah Hussein was everything, you know, he was, he was smaller, frail, sickly, and yet this small, frail, sickly scholar not, uh, became an incredible warrior. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Steve Sarowitz. He's an entrepreneur and philanthropist, and he's the executive producer of a new film that details the founding of the Baha'i faith called The Gate. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash not seen radio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest today is Steve Sarowitz. He is an entrepreneur and a philanthropist, and he's the executive producer of a new film about the Baha'i faith called The Gate. And before the end of our last segment, we were talking about the devotees of the Bab. They had just figured out that they were part of a new religion. They had broken off from Islam, and Islam fought back and attacked them, and they were defending themselves. And the Bab is still in prison at this time. So take us up from the story from there. What happens next? Well, eventually the Persian army does a siege, and so they, on a Quran, they offer safe passage to the remaining surviving people at Fort Tabarsi, uh, out of respect for the Quran, they sign this agreement. The Persian army violates the agreement. This happened multiple times to the Babis. Tremendous carnage for the Babis. They, they you know, wipe, would wipe them out, man, woman, and child. There were some survivors to tell the story, but, but few. The Bab, meanwhile, is very sad in jail. And eventually, they take the Bab, as the jailers become believers, they take the Bab and they put him on trial, and they ask him who he is. And I think we talked about that. He says, I am, I am, I am. At that point, they have to kill him. So they, on July 9th, 1850, the Bob, they go to get him out of a cell, and the Bob says, oh, I'm sorry, you can't kill me now. No earthly force can take me until I'm ready to go. He was talking to his secretary, and he wasn't done, and he says, okay, you've got to do this first. He was finishing his last words, his last teaching. Yes. And so he says, you can't kill me until, until I'm done. But they take him anyway. They don't listen to him. They tie him up in a public square, 
in Tabriz, Persia, they tie up one of his followers, a niece, uh, a young man who wants to get killed with him. And Sam Khan, the executioner, gives the order. 750 rifle shots ring out in front of thousands of people. There's people on rooftops all across this public square. It's a very public execution. And when the smoke clears, what do you think, dead or alive? Well, I've watched the film, so I know what happens. But in the telling of the film, when the smoke clears, the bob is gone and Anis is untouched. Correct. So it's a miraculous salvation in the midst of this firing squad with 750 rifles pointed at them. Yes, it's not something I... I don't suggest this to the viewers at home. No. No, but then they get very worried and they start searching for the Bob. And where do they find the Bob? Back in a cell where he said he would be, finishing his mission, talking to his secretary. And very calmly, the Bob says, oh, I finished my mission now. And with a smile, he says, you can kill me. And he keeps that smile all the way to his grave. They take him, they tie him up again. They tie up Anise again. Sam Khan, the original executioner, was Armenian Christian. You see, they wanted to saddle the Christians with this because there was a Muslim prophecy that said the Muslims would kill their own promised one. Sam Khan says, sorry, you can shoot me. I'm never doing this again. And he pulls his entire regiment. They get another regiment, a Muslim regiment, the second time. And that Muslim regiment shoots and kills the Bab and Anis. And they don't stop there. They've been killing, as we mentioned before, the followers of the Bab already. By 1852, they've killed over 20,000 followers of the Bab. And now only two leaders remain, Tahereh, who we mentioned earlier, and Baha'u'llah. Now, Tahereh, she's quite beautiful. She's incredibly brilliant. And so she's successfully teaching this faith that male scholars try to debate her from behind a curtain. She simply embarrasses them. She's quite beautiful, too. And so the king, the shah, says, will you marry me? I'll save you. You don't have to die like all the rest of the leaders. And Tahereh says, no, you keep your religion. I'll keep mine. She keeps going. Eventually, they do arrest her, and before she dies, she puts on her wedding dress, and Tahereh says her famous last words, which are, you can kill me as soon as you like, but you cannot stop the emancipation of women. The next one, and the the last one left now, is Baha'u'llah, son of a provincial governor, one of the wealthiest men in Persia. Baha'u'llah, at a very early age, is known for his wisdom. The Bab, Muhammad, Jesus, they were all known for their early wisdom innate wisdom before any teaching. When he's 12 or 13, all of the leaders in town are gathered around him, very much like what happened with Christ. And like Christ, he's also known as being very generous to the poor. He's actually, his nickname is actually the father of the poor. He turns down a provincial governorship at the age of 22, becomes a follower of the Bab uh, later in his 20s, becomes a great leader in the Babi faith. And so in 1852, he's now the last remaining leader. So what they do is they want to kill him, but he's too popular. He's this kind and wise nobleman. So what they do is they arrest him. They put 100-pound chains on his shoulders, accuse him of a crime he has not committed. They torture him. They chain him to several other people. They put him in a place called the Black Pit, three stories underground. They burn his hometown. They steal his great wealth. And in the Black Pit, he's left there for four months. And this is an awful dungeon. He's there with murderers and and thieves and, and all sorts of criminals. It's dark, it's dirty, it's smelly. And in this terrible place, he sees the vision of a maiden. The maiden says, you're the promised one of all face. So for the Hindus, we mentioned the Hindus earlier, he'd be the 10th avatar. For the Buddhists, the 5th Buddha. For the Jews, the Messiah. For the Zoroastrians, we haven't mentioned them, Shabaram. And for the Christians and for the Muslims, for both the Christians and the Muslims, he would be the return of Christ. 
Now, so if I'm understanding, then the Bob was not the return of Christ. The Bob would have been, I guess, in Christian understanding, when we read the end of Malachi, there's the promise that John the Baptist would return. So is the Bob sort of a John the Baptist figure for Baha'u'llah, in your understanding? Functionally, yes. Okay. So all of this is a little more complex, but I'll say it this way. Every messenger of God has two stations. There's the station in which all of them are Christ in that station. They're, they're all messengers of God, and they're all equal. In that case, they're all the return of Christ. But in terms of his mission, the return of Christ is definitely Baha'u'llah. So Baha'u'llah is the one who says he's the return of Christ. And yes, functionally, the Bab is very much, and, and if you actually read his writings, he's talking about the one who shall be made manifest throughout, especially the last three years of his ministry, He's very much John the Baptist in his function, in his, his mission. So the Bob himself was saying, I'm not it. There's another to come. Yes. Okay. Now, this moves then from being down in a pit. How does it get from the pit, the, the black pit, to being a, now a global faith? So Baha'u'llah is freed from the black pit, and he's exiled for 40 years. He's immediately exiled to Baghdad. He stays there for 10 years. He announces publicly that he's the promised one of all faiths in 1863. But his mission starts in 1852 in the Black Pit when he gets his vision, and it goes for 40 years of harsh exile. Finally, uh, four different exiles. His fourth and final exile is to to the worst prison city in the Ottoman Empire, which is Akka, then Palestine, now Akko, Israel. So for 40 years, he's sent from one place to another. They're, They're trying, because he becomes very popular every place he goes. They're trying to keep it all underground. He reveals along the way the equivalent of 60 Christian Bibles. So he writes and he writes and he writes. And his essential message is this. I've come for all humanity. And I've come with something called the most great peace. And we get it when we understand the oneness of humanity. And he teaches these things that are very radical at that time. First of all, women and men are equal. Of course, that's not surprising given what the Bab and Tahereh had taught. But he goes on to say that there's only one race, the human race. Now, if you have to mention... You know, at this time, when in the 1850s and 1860s, we're just getting rid of slavery here. In no way, shape, or form around the world did people think we were one human race. But Baha'u'llah is saying that. Even more radical, he says that the earth is but one country, mankind its citizens. So he's going in a time when most people didn't go more than 15 miles from their house their whole lives. He's, you know, before airplane travel, before computers, before telephones, before the internet, he's saying... The earth is but one country. He's, he's envisioning this modern global civilization that we have. And then he says probably the most radical thing of all. He says that all the religions are wonderful, but they're only chapters. That Christianity is this glorious, amazing, perfect chapter in an eternal faith of God. He says the, you know, eternal in the past, eternal in the future. And that so is Judaism, and so is Islam, and that all the faiths are about love. What Christ taught, what Jesus Christ taught, he says, is perfect love, universal love. And it's not, you know, when Christ says, love thy neighbor, he wasn't talking about your Christian neighbor on your left. He was talking about your Muslim neighbor and your Buddhist neighbor and your Hindu neighbor. And, and love is a universal, all-encompassing love. And he says, this is what Buddha was teaching. This is what Christ Jesus was teaching. This is what Muhammad was teaching. And he says, when humanity comes to this understanding, we'll have world peace. And I really was attracted to this idea that we could really do it. I, I think a lot of people have lost hope that we could have peace. And, and we as Baha'is are very hopeful because it's been promised. Just like the Jews have been promised this return to Israel, 
Baha'is really believe for all of us, and it's all, all of us together will have peace. Well, and so let me ask you then. So you were not born into the Baha'i faith. You, you came to it. What was it? How old were you, and, and what brought you to the Baha'i faith? When I first heard about the faith, I was about 20 years old. I was at the University of Illinois. I went to the Hillel, which is the Jewish Student Center, and this person gave this very nice talk about progressive revelation, which is what I'm talking about now, that a single God has sent messengers. Each messenger in every age, he said, gives two parts to the message. One is the eternal spiritual truths, which are all the same between Judaism and Christianity and Islam. The other is the social laws and teachings, which vary by the age. So some of these new teachings I'm talking about from Baha'u'llah are really specifically for this age. And he says all these teachers are universal. That just made a lot more sense. Because, see, I was raised with the understanding that I, as a Jew, was right and the Christians were wrong. Although there was a lot more Christians, I thought, well, maybe they're right and we're wrong. Or maybe the Muslims are right and the Christians are wrong. It just was so confusing. And so the Baha'i speaker was telling me, no, we're really all right, in essence. And then if we're wrong, we're only wrong on a few things. But essentially, the Muslim message is the Christian message, is the Jewish message. And it's all about love and unity. That was a much better message to me than division and hate. And it makes a lot more sense because I also, I haven't mentioned this, but so actually, so my, my path goes, I didn't go directly from U of I to the Baha'i faith. I ended up studying Christianity. In my mid-20s, I, I, I met um, a gentleman who's a pastor who's become a very good friend of mine. We've been studying the Christian faith for almost 30 years now. I'm in my mid-50s now, and we've become just excellent friends, and we read the Bible. And so as I'm reading the Bible, I, I really saw this universal love. It was interesting because I was taught not to believe in Jesus, and I have just this unbelievable, undying love for Jesus now from both the Baha'i faith and my studies of the Bible with a Christian pastor. And what I realized is that Christ was teaching us love with no limits. And so what the Baha'i faith says, and so in my mid-40s, I began studying the Baha'i faith in earnest with another friend of mine. And as I studied the faith, after a few years of studying the faith, I realized this was what I really believed. And so I I ended up, in 2015, I declared as a Baha'i. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Steve Sarowitz. He's an entrepreneur and a philanthropist, and he's the executive producer of a new film called The Gate, which is about the founding and early years of the Baha'i faith. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Commonweal podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Steve Sarowitz. He's an entrepreneur and a philanthropist, and he's the executive producer of a new film called The Gate, which chronicles the early years of the Baha'i faith. Well, before our break, you were talking a little bit about your own journey to become a Baha'i, and you mentioned in 
2015, you declared yourself to be a Baha'i, and you mentioned that you had been raised in the Jewish faith. First of all, was there pushback from your family when you said, I'm Baha'i? Well, with my family, 19 members of my family were killed in the Holocaust. And so oh, sorry. My, uh, well, you didn't do it, but actually, I'm grateful. And it may sound strange, but I'm grateful for one thing. I'm grateful that I can tell you that and say I'm not from a family where they killed 19 people or thousands of people. I think it's a lot easier for me to digest as saying I'm a victim versus I, I would be really terrible for me to say, well, you know, my grandparents were Nazis mm-hmm. instead of, you know, my grandpa's brothers and sisters were killed in the Holocaust. But my father, when I declared as a Baha'i, said, well, you've abandoned, you've disgraced our relatives who, who laid down their lives for the Jewish faith. And I said to him, I said, Dad, I can't change that. I can't go back in time. I wish I could and save our relatives from this awful death. But what I can do is I can fight with everything I have to prevent the next Holocaust. And I can think of no better way than to teach people these tenets of peace and unity that Baha'u'llah was teaching. And at first, my dad was resistant. In the last year, he's come around, and he actually called me to apologize. He said, you know, I was wrong. I see what you're doing, and I really appreciate what you're doing. And so I've always gotten along very well with my family. I've had, a, you know, my two sisters, they're both Jewish. I just took them to Israel. I've had a great relationship before I became a Baha'i, and we have a great relationship, and I adore my sisters. And you mentioned that you've made a deep study of the Christian faith, and I'm curious, because we've talked about the resistance of Muslims to the founding of the Baha'i faith, but I'm wondering, as the Baha'i became a more global religion, has there been resistance from Christianity, and what has that looked like? There, of course, is always resistance to something new. Most of the American Baha'is come from a Christian background, so some Christians embrace the faith. I find that most Christians I talk to are very friendly, especially the more they get to know me and realize that I'm not against Christianity. Uh, The faith is not against Christianity. The faith is very reverent of Jesus Christ. There's a statement by Shoghi Effendi, the guardian, who was the great-grandson of Baha'u'llah. He was the last singular leader of the Baha'i faith. A beautiful statement talking about how we accept all the main tenets of Christianity. Baha'is really embrace the truth of Christianity. We love Jesus. We love Christianity. We defend the Bible. We defend Jesus. So from our perspective, from a Baha'i perspective, there's no problem with Christianity, and we would never force our—we don't impose our faith on anybody. So one thing you'll know is that a Baha'i is never going to try to force you to be a Baha'i. If you're a happy Christian, we're happy. I have many, many Christian friends. From the other side, as I teach the faith, I occasionally have a Christian who's hostile because they're mad because we're saying something other than the Bible, and that's okay. I mean, I, I personally would say that's not Christ-like. I believe that Christ was about love and unity. And even if I disagree with you or you disagree with me, and I think the Christians I admire the most, including my friend who I'm studying the Bible with, he knows I'm a Baha'i, he respects my faith, but he's loving and kind about it. And I think that's a Christian. I have so many wonderful Christian pastors and friends, and I really respect and adore them. And they're my brothers, literally, my brothers and sisters. I have a, actually a female minister who's a, a good friend of mine. And, and so I would tell you that to me, I think we should all be in love and harmony. I think that's what Christ imagined. And I don't understand people who hate in the name of their religion, whether, you know, there are, I've met hateful Christians, I've met hateful Muslims, I've met a few hateful Jews even. You know, I don't think people are hating in the name of any religion, whether I do it as a Baha'i. To me, the label doesn't matter. I'm a lover, not a hater. And I hope that people would take me the same way and take my faith the same way and understand that my faith is not in any way meant to denigrate Christianity. 
Well, you became an executive producer of this new film, The Gate. Let's talk a little bit about that. What was the impetus for making this film, and what did you hope to accomplish in making this film? Well, three days after I became a Baha'i, I emailed my friend, and I actually emailed him in front of a portrait of about 100 people that were martyred in Iran. There's tremendous persecution to this day in Iran of Baha'is. And I emailed him, and in, in that picture, by the way, was a picture of his own father who'd been martyred. And so my friend, uh, I come from the payroll industry, payroll and HR, and he's in the same industry. We've both been successful. And he knew I was very successful. And he says, I, to I told him I just wanted to retire and teach this faith. I was so enamored with the faith, which I definitely am. And he says, well, you could do that and reach hundreds of people. But if you made a movie, you could reach millions of people. And less than an hour later, I get an email from a movie producer who I'd never talked to. But he was talking to me about philanthropy. His name is Peter Samuelson. And Peter Samuelson has made a lot of movies. Some of the young people might not remember his most famous movie, but it's called Revenge of the Nerds. So Peter's a very successful movie producer. And he was talking to me about helping foster children, which we ended up doing. And I ended up going out to L.A. the next week to meet Peter. I just happened to be going out there anyway. He says, come out and talk. And I said, well, what about this movie? And we were sitting at this cafe in Santa Monica, Fairmont Hotel, outdoor cafe. And there's another table right next to ours, and there was a Christian, uh, two gentlemen who were Christian next uh, next to us, and they were having a discussion about religion, and I happened to hear a question, and I answered it like a, a nosy Baha'i. And uh, so anyway, we were having a, a nice four-way conversation, and the gentleman next to Peter, it turns out he'd been asked to make a movie about the Baha'i faith as well. And as you mentioned, there's, not that, there's only about 175,000 Baha'is in America, so it's a, a relatively small faith. So the idea of two Baha'i movies in that in that tiny space just floored me. And I thought, well, that's a sign from God. Peter was a sign from God and this other gentleman. And I've had so many more signs from God. So uh, the way I like to say it is I was asked to make this movie three days into me being a Baha'i. I'd, I'd been a Baha'i for three days and I'd never made a movie. So I was about the most unqualified person you could ever imagine. And somehow God wanted me to do it. What was interesting is months later, I went back and looked at that portrait uh, I mentioned with my friend's dad, who was a martyr, a very brave man. He was a, a very successful businessman like me. He was in America, and his son told him they were killing the Baha'is in Persia, in Iran, and that, Dad, you don't have to go back. His dad took the first plane back. And I looked at that painting, and the people there were all numbered. And I was 49 years old when I declared as a Baha'i, and there was his dad number 49, right in the center of the picture. And I knew that that was another sign from God. And that brings us back to the earlier part of the conversation where these confluences of numbers were very important for the early founding of the Baha'i faith. And it's clear to me you take that very seriously, that these signs, these glimpses, these moments are like pieces on the roadmap, little ways that you navigate. I really think that God guides us all. I think that we're all, I really have such a passion for the oneness of humanity. And I really think all of us are in this together. And I think that one of the problems is we, we take these labels, whether it be Christian or Jew or, or Muslim or Baha'i, and we divide each other. But I can't find anywhere in the Bible where Jesus ever told us to hate in his name. I think he always was teaching about love. And I, I think Moses was teaching about love, and Muhammad was teaching about love, and Baha'u'llah was teaching about love. And I really think that's where it's at. And the numbers are there to guide us. But really what's there to guide us is our hearts. And I really think the essence of all faiths, and this is what Baha'u'llah was saying, is love and unity. So if someone goes to a screening of this film or downloads this film on Amazon Prime or the other places where it's available, what will they encounter? What is the film doing? 
Well, it's really just a historical documentary. So even if you're not a Baha'i, I think you'll find it to be an incredibly interesting story about it. As Shoghi Effendi says, uh, the life of the Bab parallels Jesus Christ like no other life in the last 2,000 years. This young prophet comes to an orthodoxy, a very strict orthodoxy, and he has great adulation at times and great tribulation at times. He's put on trial. He's put in jail. He has very similar words when he's asked who he is. He's suspended in front of a crowd, very much like Christ. And this time, he actually doesn't get killed. Unlike Christ, who actually dies on the cross, the Bob the Bob disappears. So it's a very exciting. Of course, you know you have the resurrection in in, in Christendom, and so these there's very exciting moments throughout all their lives. As I said, the Bob had a lot more followers than than Jesus did. Jesus had. I mean, this is not, by the way, anything I say about Jesus. We literally think that Jesus, as Baha'is, think that he was perfect, that he was 100% man, 100% God. Any differences between the Bob and Jesus would be attributed to us, the followers. And so at the time of the Bob, we were more attuned and more ready to follow. I think the weaknesses are never in the messenger, but always in the followers. And so if the Baha'i faith is one iota more successful or the message is any better, it's only because I, one of my favorite verses is John sixteen twelve and, and actually John sixteen thirteen, where Jesus says, I have more to tell you, but you cannot bear it now. Albeit when he, the spirit of truth, has come, I'll tell you of all things. Baha'u'llah actually cites that. He, he says, I am that spirit of truth. And so it, what it's saying is not that Jesus isn't perfect in every way. He's absolutely perfect. But we, humanity, was not ready for some of the things that Baha'u'llah has now come and said. And so Baha'u'llah says, here, here it is. And so the way I look at this now, after thinking about it for several years, is that we're really just following the faith of God. Take away all the names. Take away Christ, even Jesus. It's the faith of God. Jesus was the face of God, the voice of God. You know, people ask me, was Jesus God? I say, well, physically, he was just a man. And everyone would probably agree with that, even the most ardent Christians. But if you look at him, you see the face of God with spiritual eyes. If you listen to him, you hear the word the, directly. It's God talking to us. So in every important way, he was God. But he was physically a man. And that's how I look at Baha'u'llah. So this is the word of God in every generation and the most thrilling thing to me is to think that God would love us so much to send messengers in every age. And that Baha'u'llah says he'll continue to do so in the future. Not for a thousand years, he says, but he says continually in the future, God will always, out of his love for us, send messengers with this perfect message in every age. And so I love the idea of getting rid of these divisions that we've put upon each other. And, you know, if you ask, and one of the questions I always ask people, if you're a Christian, well, what if you'd been born in India? You'd be a Hindu. Wouldn't you be a good person? What if you were born in the Middle East? You'd be most likely a Muslim. Are Muslims bad because they're born there or Hindus? No, of course not. God loves us, and God is universal in his love. And so I believe if we put these labels away and say, no, we're children of God, that's what Christ was teaching, we get a lot further. And, and I, I believe that, according to Baha'u'llah, and I really believe Baha'u'llah, that we will eventually get there. And we will unite as a single humanity. What do you hope when someone watches this film? Like, if, if you could hope for one thing for a viewer, what would it be? I would hope that they would know a little bit more about the Baha'i faith, that um, they would enjoy this incredible story of this incredibly brave prophet. Who, you know, he was a merchant. He didn't have to do any of this. But just to see, I mean, it's, it's literally like the, 
it's like watching the story, a modern day story of Jesus. I mean, just such an exciting life. And, you know, that's why they, they call the story of Jesus the greatest story ever told. And there's no question that it's an incredible story. And I say this is the greatest story never told, that so few people know it. It's this piece of history that we don't know. So even if you never become a Baha'i, which I assume that most people won't become Baha'is, be a great, you know, and, and most of the audience is Christians, be a great Christian and just know something more about something you didn't know, about Persia, about the Bab, know this great story. And that's, that's great. And maybe you know a little bit more about the Baha'i faith. So when you meet a Baha'i, oh, yeah, I saw this movie, I heard about your faith. And again, break bread with a Baha'i, break bread. I think that it's so important for us to, as part of unity, this unity that's so important to me, that we learn about each other. And maybe we're not so different. Well, Steve Sarowitz, I've had the opportunity through the years to interact with members of the Baha'i faith, and I've had the chance to visit the Baha'i Temple north of Chicago. It's always been a rich experience, and I have for so long wanted to be able to have conversations about Baha'i here on the program. I thank you so much for taking time to talk about the film, The Gate, but also to talk about your faith and your journey to faith. I've really appreciated it. I'm honored to be here. I wish you'd gotten a better Baha'i, but I did the best I could. <laughs> We've been speaking today with Steve Sarowitz. He is an entrepreneur and a philanthropist. He is also the executive producer of the recent film, The Gate, which chronicles the early years of the founding of the Baha'i faith. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.